0: Um, everybody, Steve, I'm the lead pastor here. Thank you uh, to Jeff and Lindsay for reading this long, long passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. So, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 13. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone on our team will come around uh, and make sure you have one of those. Uh, just want to say real quick, man, the energy in the room today is great. I don't know if it's like the beginning of a new quarter or this the sun is finally shining, but um, as my friend Caleb, our guitar player, would say, it is hopping this morning. And that is very exciting. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're gonna to be today again, this really long section of Jesus teaching. Uh, in parables. I'm going to talk more about what that looks like in just a moment. I want to give a little bit of context though for where uh, we are this morning in case you uh, are, are sort of dropping in uh, with us during this time. We've been looking at the story of Jesus as told to us by Matthew. Matthew, one of Jesus's first followers. And we've been looking at Uh, this book in movements, a series of, of parts or movements, and we're wrapping up today the fourth of seven movements. We've been calling this movement Kingdoms in Conflict because we're seeing that Jesus and his kingdom, his vision of the kingdom, is bumping into running up against other visions for what the kingdom of heaven was to look like. In particular, we've seen Jesus in conflict with a group of what religious leaders called the Pharisees, one of the more vocal and influential uh, leadership groups of the Jews during this time. And they've been at it for the last couple of weeks. If you've been with us the last Sundays, you know this to be true. They've been arguing over things like the, the Sabbath law and how to interpret that. They've been frustrated, uh, the Pharisees frustrated with Jesus uh, over the company that he keeps, hanging out with notorious sinners and tax collectors and then again last Sunday they uh, begin to start working against Jesus trying to undermine his reputation the smear campaign uh, trying to prove that he is a false prophet and as this conflict has escalated we've discovered that the the stakes here are very very high this has moved from a, a disagreement or a differing view on things different interpretations to now being a matter of life and Death. The Pharisees are out looking for ways to kill Jesus. And Jesus has made it very clear, whoever is not with me is against me. This line in the sand. So this has been building for several weeks, leading now into this long section of parables. So before we get into that, I want to pause here for a moment and just pray for our time, and then we'll turn our attention to Matthew 13. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are... So grateful to be together, to have this time, this space, to uh, be in relationship with one another, make new friends, strengthen old friendships, to worship and sing uh, and engage with you in that way and to hear from your word, to open the scriptures together and to see what you have for us there. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? What we need to see, what we need to hear this morning, would we be good soil, receptive to your words and your leading in our life? Would we be people who seek more of Jesus, who do not settle into complacency or passivity? May we ask and seek and knock for more of Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, "Amen." All right, I want to begin uh, with a concept called deep work. I've become uh, introduced to this here recently. Um, how many of you have had this experience where you sit down at your uh, your laptop, you open up your tablet to do some work, get something done on a particular project? And you open up your email and you see what's going on there and then maybe you open up a uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter and you kind of scroll, scroll through that for a few moments and then like this thing pops into your mind you're like oh I had an Amazon order I need to go check and see how that's going and, and like how much money is in my bank account and I wasn't at Discovery on Sunday, so I better listen to Pastor Steve's sermon. So you go and you open that window. And then next thing you know, like, there's 20 updates on Twitter. So you have to go back to that and see what's going on there. And, oh, that article looks interesting. And, oh, the 49ers want to trade the second pick in the draft. What is that all about? And next thing you know, you've been sitting there for 45 minutes, and you have done zero work. Right? Anybody have this experience? Okay, this is a moment of confession for us as a church community. All right? There's a good amount of research out now indicating that we continue to be very productive people, but we're also very distracted and fragmented in the way that we work. We rarely get to spend large chunks of uninterrupted time on a project or a skill, two to three hours just writing that thesis, a whole morning spent practicing those skills. We rarely get into deep work. Deep work is defined as time spent multiplied by intensity of focus. Time spent multiplied by intensity of focus. And it's the intensity of focus that we tend to lack in our world of technology and distractions. And please don't raise your hand on this one. But how many of you were like, how long is this passage going to be? As Jeff and Lindsay were reading that, right? This is how our brains increasingly work and operate but again the research indicates that true joy with a job or a project or a hobby comes from being able to do deep work. And and research and data aside, I think we know this to be true in our bones. In fact, Dave alluded to this just a few moments ago. The most important things in life require dedication and sacrifice. They require a pursuit over time. And I want us to have this phrase in our minds as we make our way through Matthew chapter 13 this morning. A pursuit over time. Today, Jesus is is teaching by using stories, using this technique called parables. And so what I want us to do, we're going to spend most of our time kind of at the 30,000-foot level talking about what are parables and why does Jesus use parables and how do they work. And then we'll draw some conclusions about what this means for us at the end. So let's begin by defining Parables, according to the dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, a parable is a short narrative with different levels of meaning. And right out of the gate here, this is really important for us to sit with for just a moment, okay? Different levels of meaning. There's a thing, there's a story that's happening on the surface of a parable, and then there's a thing behind the thing. There's something going on underneath the surface. Jesus' parables are both works of art and the weapons he used in the conflict with his opponents. Here is this idea of kingdoms in conflict. Again, we'll talk more about how he does this in just a moment. They were the teaching method he chose most frequently. and, And again, pay attention to this word frequently. Most frequently to explain the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and to show the character of God and the expectations God has for People, many parables convey two or three truths and there may be several correspondences between a specific parable and the reality it portrays. Again, notice the depth of meaning to these stories. Now, Jesus, not the only one to use parables, other rabbis and teachers of that time use this technique, but again, Jesus uses them more often and more frequently than other teachers, I think we need to pay really careful attention to this, the volume and the frequency with which he uses parables. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Why use parables? Why use them so often? Why use stories to explain something so important as the kingdom of heaven? The first part of our text, verses 1 through 23, is a story about a farmer and seed. And soils. And when you get into it, you realize this is a parable about parables. Jesus goes very meta here at the beginning of this teaching. And we're gonna come back to this story a few different times this morning, but within this, again, very meta story, Jesus gives us the why. Verse 13 and 14, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see, though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. So one reason Jesus uses parables is to fulfill prophecy. God foretold this was going to be something the Messiah did from long ago. This idea repeated later on in verses 34 and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled What was spoken through the prophet? I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, this still doesn't totally make sense, right? It's great that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, but why would you want to strategically do something that not everyone is going to understand? Why do something strategically that not everyone is going to understand? What these allusions to the Old Testament prophecy do is show us how God knew hundreds, thousands of years before that his people were going to get so far off track that they wouldn't even be able to recognize him if he was standing right in front of them. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear with their eyes, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this might sound a little bit harsh to us, but it also shouldn't surprise us. Again, if you've been tracking with us over the last several weeks, we've seen that all too often a reaction to Jesus and his kingdom is rejection. And in the stories today, we see there are soils where the kingdom does not take root. There are weeds in the middle of the wheat. There are good fish and there are bad fish and there is going to be a separation that will take place. There are negative consequences for rejecting the kingdom of heaven and the parables, in a way, are designed to help with this sorting process. Here we come to the paradox of parables. They both obscure and reveal at the same time. And the hard truth here is that not everyone gets it. There is, a, again, a harshness to this separating or sorting. Not everyone is going to get it. This is a hard one for me as a pastor. I want everyone to get it, but not everyone will get it. So there's this harshness. There's also, though, I think a mercy and a gentleness at work here as well. Jesus does not force his kingdom on anyone. He tells stories. He invites response. He invites participation. And he waits to see how are people going to respond. Who's getting this? Who's tracking with me? Now again, if you've been around for this series, you know one of the fundamental organizing principles in the book of Matthew is these long teaching sections like the one we're in today. There's five of them. This is the third one that we've encountered so far. Scholars oftentimes call these discourses, the five discourses of Matthew. And scholars see this as a, a way for Matthew to engage with and interact with his primarily Jewish audience. They would have known the five books of the law. That would have been in their minds. And so this is a way for him to connect with, uh, with them. Again, the third of five big discourses. It's interesting to note the progression of these discourses. The first one, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. One of Jesus' most famous teachings, quite a direct teaching. Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Right relationships, radical trust, loving your enemies, praying to your father, giving your stuff away. Hard to apply, but pretty clear what the meaning is. Second discourse came in Matthew chapter 10, and and this is where we see Jesus giving, again, direct uh, instructions, direct teaching, but now just to his disciples, just to the 12. And he says, I'm going to send you out. You are going to tell people about the good news of my kingdom, and this is how you're going to do it, and this is some things to expect along the way. So there's this added layer, the Good news of the kingdom now being communicated secondhand through the disciples. So, clear teaching to this, this added layer. Now, here, Jesus once again speaking directly to the people, but using stories. And there's this correlation between the conflict that's escalating between these kingdoms, the misunderstanding about who Jesus is, and Jesus growing more and more indirect. In his communication, Jesus, to quote Emily Dickinson, is telling the truth but telling it slant. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. So there's this harsh reality to parables, this separation that's happening. There's also this gentleness, telling the truth but telling it slant, obscuring and revealing at the same time, seeing who gets it, who is good soil, who is going to respond to Jesus' words. Now let's talk a little bit about how parables work. First thing, parables work by leveling the playing field. These are not uh, esoteric stories, uh, some sort of hidden kind of knowledge. They do obscure the truth, but you did not need to be a rabbi or a scholar to understand what's going on here. In fact, most of the time Jesus is speaking to people who had very little formal education. These are simple stories Stories that on the surface anyone could understand. They are about leveling the playing field. Second, parables invite participation. They work by inviting participation. Now again, back to this story of the seeds and the soils. Almost anyone present would have understood the gist of what Jesus was saying. And most of his audience likely farmed for subsistence and to survive. So a story about a farmer sowing seeds, of course, this is an image that they would have resonated with. They would have known what this work looked like and why you would do this. They would have understood, yeah, of course, not every single seed is going to turn into a crop. A task and an image, again, that would have resonated with this audience. But then there are some parts of this story that don't totally make sense, especially to an agrarian society. The farmer, very indiscriminate in how he sows, almost wasteful. No farmer would intentionally throw seed onto the road, onto ground that had not been cultivated. So this story, it resonates at one level on the surface, but it also invites these questions. What is up with the farmer? Why does he work in this way? Why isn't he more intentional in how he sows the seed? Why is Jesus, a carpenter and a rabbi, telling us a a story with farming advice? Why doesn't he give an explanation to everyone? What is Jesus doing here? These kinds of questions and this kind of participation differentiates a parable from a riddle. Okay, riddles are... are, um, kind of fun to do with my kids. Uh, they're four and six, and so it's, it's uh, fun to watch them, like their brain, little brains kind of trying to figure out, okay, what, what does this mean? You know, a, a riddle like, what weighs more, a ton of bricks or a ton of feathers, right? Oh, bricks, Dad, obviously. Or what about this one? What gets wetter the more it dries? Towel. Mark got it. <laughs> All right, there's a difference between a a riddle and how it works and a parable and how they work. A a riddle obscures the truth and it does involve the listener, but it only has one clear answer. And once you figure it out, it's over, right? You're kind of, oh, Tao, got it. A parable obscures the truth and involves the listener, but again, it has this depth of meaning. It invites you to keep looking for more. It invites you into this pursuit over time. To see even more than you saw the first time. It's like a gem that you keep turning. And every time you turn it, you see a new facet of its brilliance. This leads us to the third way parables work. The participation involves seeking more. The scene opens with Jesus interacting with yet another massive crowd. And uh, yet another theme that's come up, you know, multiple times. This crowd uh, knows probably at some level the background of, of this—that Jesus has been healing people, doing these incredible miracles, that he's been having these throwdown moments with the Pharisees—and so they're all here in anticipation of what is this guy going to do next. And I want us to sit with that for just a second here. Imagine going to see your favorite band. And the opening band or two has played, and there's that pause, right, while you're waiting for that, uh, that band to come on. And the anticipation is growing and building. And if you're there with your friend, maybe you're saying things like, oh, I hope they play this song, and, and I hope that they do a couple songs from that album. It's my favorite album. And you're like, when is this going to get started? When are they going to come out? And they come out, and they play that first note, and you're like, oh, yes, this is so good. And they play half a song, and then they walk off the stage. This is kind of what this moment is like for this this crowd. The anticipation has been building. What is Jesus going to do next? What is this going to look like? And now, oh my goodness, he's in a boat. And what is he going to do in this boat? This This is interesting and different. And Jesus gets up and he tells them a farming story. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then he walks off. Or I guess in this case, he dramatically floats back to the shore. Like, what was that moment like? would have been a massive letdown for a lot of people. That's it. But the disciples, who get so many things wrong, so easy to to poke at and make fun of the disciples, they do get this one thing right. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And then later on, they came and they, they asked him very directly, explain to us the parable. They take the bait. They participate. They ask a great question. They come to Jesus. They seek more. And they end up finding out a whole bunch more. A lot of people walked away from that moment going, that was weird. You know, interesting story, but like what was that all about? But the disciples say, wait a minute. I think there's more going on here. And there is, right? Jesus says, you have been given the opportunity to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but they have not. You have been given the opportunity to know the secret of the kingdom. Now, this is so important for us. The secret of the kingdom is not that they understood what Jesus was talking about. It's not that they were smarter than everyone else or on some sort of different intellectual plane. The secret is that they went to Jesus and asked for more. Pursuit over time. And the good news here is that whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance, Jesus says. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. I want to pause here for a moment and just walk through a couple of important implications so far for us. Okay, first one is this: I think that there is this false assumption in in church, and I'm not picking on anybody here. I'm just saying, broadly speaking, there is this false assumption in church that good teaching equals clear teaching. That there's one meaning to a text, and you just have to say what it is and give three points and an application. Good job, pastor. <laughs> Now, I, want to be, I do want to be clear about this point, okay? There are times where we need clarity. And for me, as a pastor, for our teaching team, as a team that helps speak into what we talk about here on Sunday morning, there are moments where we need to be able to stand up and say, this is what the text says, and this is what we are going to do in response to it. Clarity is a good thing. <clears throat> but sometimes clarity comes through obscuring. Tell the truth, but tell it slants. Jesus would not pass a lot of seminary preaching classes with his parables. Sometimes we need to be confused. We need to be disturbed. We need to be surprised. We need to be invited to search and to find out more. We don't always need three points in an application. We need a story. Theologian Ivan Illich who wrote and reflected uh, very deeply on modern society, he grew up in a, one of the Soviet bloc countries, was once asked the question, what's the most revolutionary way to change society? Is it violent revolution or is it gradual reform? And he thought about it for a moment and he said, neither. If you want to change society, he says, you must tell an alternative story. If you want to change the world, you must tell A better story. Stories open us up. They engage our imaginations. They force us to ask questions. They invite us to seek more. Parables invite us to seek more of Jesus. To a pursuit over time. Jesus tells great stories. We need to tell great stories. Second thing here, there's also, I think, a false assumption that Sunday morning is where learning happens. Come and listen to the pastor and everything will be illuminated. Okay, that's not true. <laughs> At Discovery here, we, we hope that Sunday morning is, is fruitful and inspiring uh, and helpful to you in many different ways. But for us, this is the beginning of a conversation. Our Discovery groups are just as important as Sunday morning. What happens here, it's, it's, groups are where we process Together, where we pursue together, where we seek more together. Again, what separated the disciples from everyone else? Was it that they took really good notes and they had all the answers, they could regurgitate back to Jesus what he had told them? No. It's that they went looking for more, they asked good questions. We, again, speaking very broadly, we as the church have become so passive in our discipleship, and yet we follow a rabbi. We worship a king who says, Ask, seek, knock, come looking for more, and you will find it. So, Sunday morning for us is a whoever has ears to hear kind of moment. And then, groups are where we come and ask, What did you see? What did you hear? What does this mean? How are you living this out in your life? It's where we turn the gem and ask, what else, what else, what else? Are you with me? This is so core to our philosophy here. We are going to invite you to seek more. We are going to tell stories and call each other to ask questions, to participate together in this kingdom life, to pursue over time Jesus and his kingdom first. Now, a couple of things about what these parables say about the kingdom. First, there are different responses to the kingdom, and this should be obvious. We've been talking about this already, but it's worth repeating one more time. There are four different kinds of soils. There are weeds, and there's wheat. There are good fish, and there are bad fish. There is a positive response and a negative response. A response that leads to less and to death. And a response that leads to more and to life. Different responses to the kingdom. Second, the kingdom is initially unimpressive. And here's where we get into some of the the other stories that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. But you'll notice in all these stories, the kingdom starts small. Like a farmer sowing seed. Like a mustard seed. Like yeast in a bread. Like treasure in a field. You can't even see it. It looks like a very unimpressive thing at first. But there's more going on. I think this is actually one of the reasons why the Pharisees had such a hard time with what Jesus was doing. It just didn't look that impressive. Yeah, you're healing some people, but you know your teaching's you know a little heretical, a little off base, and uh, the people that you're hanging out with are not really like great people. You know, it was not impressive to the Pharisees. This is it. This is what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. Yet each of these stories shows us that over time, and there's that phrase again, over time the kingdom expands, it produces a harvest, it grows into an ecosystem, and it is a disruptive force. It takes over the dough. It has a massive impact over time. Third, these parables show us that the kingdom of heaven is of infinite worth. These stories help us discern, help us rightly value the kingdom. It is a treasure. It is like a pearl of great price. It is so worth the seeking and the digging, worth giving up everything for, worth selling everything for in order to enjoy it and possess it and to live in it. It is of infinite worth. So a couple of things for us to reflect on as we come in for a landing here. First thing is this. What is your response to the good news of the kingdom of heaven? What is your response? Has it been to sit on the sidelines, to sort of passively take it in? Has it been... Sounds nice, but not for me. Or is it an all-out pursuit? To use the example of one of the stories, are you hoping someone else digs it up and brings it to you? Are you digging for it yourself? Are your hands dirty and calloused from all of the digging that you have been doing? What is your response to the good news of the kingdom of heaven? Second thing here is don't underestimate the impact of small Things, the small moments in our life, such a temptation in our world to be spectacular, to want to do something amazing, to see a big problem and to tackle it and to conquer it. I think this is what draws a lot of us to a place like Davis. And yet, the unimpressive things in our lives can sometimes have the greatest impact. This is kind of a silly story, but um, I think it illustrates the point. Uh, to an extent. Um, In the summer of 2013, uh, my family, we were still living in Boston at that time, and my friend Bruce called me up and said, uh, hey, I'm an elder at this church in Oakland. Um, Would you be interested in coming and being our associate pastor? And I said, no, I'm not interested in coming and being your associate pastor. I live in Boston. We're having a great time, and, and things were going relatively well. Um, But less than a year later, Amy and I did start to feel God uh, calling us to come back to California. And there was an opportunity for us in Southern California. We came out in the summer of 2014 to explore that opportunity. And uh, we flew into the Bay Area, drove down uh, to Southern California, did our recon, drove back up. And then my dad was driving us to the airport. This time it was just me and Amy and Marina. And we're driving back to the Oakland Airport. And Amy and Marina fall asleep in the back seat and me and my dad get into this big conversation about, I don't even remember what it was about. But we were, you know, talking, totally missed the exit to the airport. And and then just keep going. We almost get to the Bay Bridge. I don't know if you know Oakland and the Oakland Airport. But we get to that point where it's like last exit before the Bay Bridge. And we're like, what? How did we get here? So we veer off and turn around and come back. And as we come back up onto 880, I look out my window and I can see Bruce's office. And I, I just had this, like, bing moment of, like, I should just call Bruce and see what's going on. And so I did. And it turns out that they were still looking for an associate pastor. And that's how we ended up in Oakland and in many ways how we ended up here. We got lost on the way to the airport. <laughs> Don't underestimate the unimpressive moments in your life. This is how the kingdom of God works. My friend Darren uh, introduced me recently to this phrase, small things often. And to me, that is a kingdom of heaven phrase. Small things often have a tremendous impact. Now, one final thought. Because the kingdom of heaven is of infinite worth, there is nothing more important than the deep work of seeking first Jesus and his kingdom. That's kind of a mouthful. Let me say it again. There is nothing more important than the deep work of seeking first Jesus and his kingdom. Ben Zander was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra for many years. He's a very engaging person. If you ever have a chance to hear him speak uh, or if you look up uh, his TED talk on classical music, 20 great minutes of your life spent uh, listening to him talk. He talks about classical music, and he says one of the reasons we don't appreciate it more is because we don't understand the story that's being told. kind of like a parable. He says the story of most classical pieces is the story of a journey from one place to another, from one note to another, from the B to the E. And he says what's interesting about classical music is the journey the composer takes you on to get from B to E. He says we have to stop thinking about every single note along the way and start thinking about the long, long line from B to E. Pursuit over time. The secret of the kingdom is, again, not in the answers. It's not in each note along the way. It's in the humble heart willing to seek more. The deep work of the kingdom. The life of a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus on that long, long line from B to E. One of my dreams and prayers for you, for our church, for the church as a whole, is that we would repent of our passivity of our desire to fill in the blanks, to have all the right answers, to produce a perfect system and instead to go on that journey, to go on the adventure of discovery, pun very much intended, to pursue over time with Jesus. Again, that long, long line from B to E. I want us to be a community that has calloused hands from digging for treasure. That shows how unimpressive seeds can grow into trees and whole ecosystems. A community that asks great questions and tells great stories. That's willing to give up everything in pursuit of what is of most worth and value. A community that always is seeking more of Jesus. Our King. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here for us to consider this morning in these parables. And yet the heart of it, again, is our our, uh, willingness to seek more of you. We begin by confessing and repenting of ways in which we've been on the sidelines. We have been passive. We've been uh, arms folded, disengaged, or uh, just waiting for somebody else to do the work for us. Would we be willing to go on that search? To keep turning the gem, to find out more, to ask questions, to pursue over time your kingdom first. I pray if there are, uh, if there's anyone here this morning who has not responded to this good news, who uh, has been resisting it or, or um, otherwise rejected it in some way, God, that they would uh, respond to it today to see the value of your kingdom, to see the value of what Jesus has done for them, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. That today would be the beginning of a journey for them. A journey of discovery and seeking more. Again, Father, for for those of us who who maybe have grown uh, passive, uh, for whatever reason, God, would you cultivate good soil in our hearts so that we are responsive, that we are eager to seek more and to find out more about who you are and what this life is like. As a community, God, may we be people who seek, who pursue over time Jesus and his kingdom first. Amen.